Perhaps today we can profitably indulge in a little exposition, this time of the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to John. So I will ask you please to open your Bibles and follow with me on this. As you may know, the Gospel according to John has a very special message. We saw the other evening in the illustration of the four living creatures surrounding the throne uh, that we pointed out the fact that they were the heralds of the camp of Israel. Those same faces were the face of the cherubim which Ezekiel was caused to see that we can read about in the first chapter of Ezekiel. But we have four Gospels and it is interesting to see what correspondences there are. Uh, Matthew's Gospel corresponds to the lion because Matthew's Gospel is concerned chiefly with the kingly aspect of Jesus, of his kingdom. Mark's Gospel, corresponding to the ox, which was a beast of burden, represents Jesus' works and emphasizes this fact. Luke's Gospel, corresponding to the face of the man, presents Jesus' natural genealogy and concerns the human aspects of Jesus' ministry in particular. John's Gospel, corresponding to the eagle, the fourth of these uh, creatures, the eagle, as you know, is a very high soaring bird that can see for many miles around, that spends much time up in the blue of heaven, and is a fitting representation of the spiritual aspect of things. For as Luke's gospel gives Jesus natural genealogy, as a fleshly descendant of David, of Abraham, and of Adam. John's Gospel gives, you might say, his spiritual genealogy. Because we read that in the beginning was the Word, or the Spirit. And the Word, or Spirit, was made flesh and dwelt among us. This Gospel has 21 chapters in it, and I think it is a very significant thing that of these 21 chapters, five chapters are devoted to his discourse with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. We believe the Holy Spirit guided all these things, the choice among the writers 
and of the particular phase of Jesus that each is to portray. Uh, therefore, uh, in the mind of the Spirit, uh, this di last discourse that he had with his disciples must be considered by the Almighty through his Spirit as exceedingly important to take up nearly one-fourth of the whole gospel account of his ministry. And in this discourse of Jesus with his disciples, whether from this gospel or from the other gospels, pardon me, uh, in this discourse we see Jesus perhaps more deeply than anywhere else, particularly in that beautiful 17th chapter, which is a prayer of Jesus to his Father. Now, uh, we're taking here the consideration of a portion of the 13th chapter, because it contains many interesting figures for us. The chapter begins, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. The supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Now a man who knew so accurately as Jesus did the terrible ordeal that he would have gone through within less than 24 hours from this time would not speak of trivial things. He would not waste time on trivial acts. Therefore, this act of Jesus in washing his disciples' feet cannot be regarded as trivial. It does have significance. Now we read in Luke's Gospel that at this time, when Jesus was in this supreme agony, because he was facing the greatest decision, the greatest submission of his life. His disciples were disputing among themselves as to which was the greatest. Can you imagine anything more inappropriate, anything more out of harmony with the seriousness, the deadly seriousness of the situation, but such is the flesh. Even though his disciples were his companions and accompanied with him, 
Jesus was very much alone in many respects because the disciples simply could not rise to the depth of feeling that Jesus had or to the seriousness and importance of things as we see from this fact of their disputing among themselves as to which was the greatest. If ever a man needed consolation and sympathy, Jesus needed it on this occasion, and he didn't find it. But here the greatness of Jesus' character is shown to us because instead of upbraiding them as stupid fools, he gently proceeds to teach them a lesson and an important lesson. And this lesson is the washing of the disciples' feet. In Roman times, the people did not wear shoes with uppers such as we wear today to cover their feet. They wore only sandals. And whenever guests were bidden to a feast, the host would have a slave stand at the door, and as the guests arrived, this slave would wash the feet of the guests to remove the dust and other defilement of the journey from their home to his. And so we find Jesus gently rebuking his disciples' obtuseness by uh, performing this duty commonly assigned to a slave. And so, having laid aside his outer garments and taking this towel, he proceeds one by one around the group of his disciples to wash their feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he girded himself. Now, nothing is said of the reactions of the other disciples, but it is interesting how Peter figures here, because Peter was an interesting character. Peter was impetuous in his remarks and his reactions to situations. Also, he was very impulsive in his devotion to his Lord, as we know how he said, though all men should deny thee, yet will not I. And Peter truly believed this. Peter, of course, did not know the weakness of Peter. So we read in the sixth verse, Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Peter respected his master and called him Lord. It was totally incongruous in Peter's mind 
that the Lord and Master should perform the duty of a slave? And Jesus' answer to him was, What I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. But Peter was persistent. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus' answer is exceedingly interesting and significant. If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. This then put the situation in a very serious light. So Peter, impulsive as he was, goes to the other extreme and uh, says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And again, Jesus' answer is most interesting and most instructive. He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. And John adds, For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. Now what did he mean by ye are clean, with the exception of Judas? In the 15th chapter, in the third verse, Jesus says to his disciples, and this is after Judas had departed, and now he was in the company of the eleven who were one with him as far as the limitations of their spiritual maturity permitted. He says, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Here then we have the key or the clue as to what Jesus meant when he said, And ye are clean, but not all. The word or the teachings which he had given his disciples had cleansed them with the exception of Judas. Their minds then had been cleansed from the natural filthiness of human flesh, but this same word had not been effective in cleansing Judas' mind because, as John says, he was a thief. Now, this idea of the cleansing action of the Word of God is pointed out to us in, I'm going to read uh, about three references here to show that it, this is of general application. In 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, beginning the ninth verse, the Apostle says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, 
neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, the filthy of this world are excluded. And he continues, And such were some of you. But ye were washed. But ye are sanctified. But ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so the word of the gospel has a cleansing and purifying effect upon the mind of the person and, as it says, makes him effectively washed. And now in Ephesians, in the fifth uh, chapter, beginning the 25th verse, the apostle exhorts, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And finally, to Titus, in the third chapter, in the fifth verse, he says, uh, <clears throat> beginning the fourth verse, rather, but after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So then, the word of God cleanses, as we all know. It purifies. And so, um, it is that uh, we uh, symbolize the purification process which began when we first uh, began to learn of the truth by a physical act of washing which we call baptism. I'm afraid this is going to have to be turned down a little bit. <coughs> We say, of course, that we come into Christ at baptism, and indeed we do. But this is, shall we say, the formality or the uh, giving external evidence to that which has been taking place internally in our minds. And uh, Jesus says that uh, to Peter, as we read, If I wash thee not, 
thou hast no part with me. In other words, this washing is absolutely essential. This washing of our minds by the pure word of God. Now, after Peter protested, and Peter said this impulsively, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head, we remember that we read Jesus' reply, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. We say that it is the word that washes and cleanses. And of course, as we say, this cleansing process is finalized and formalized in a physical washing in baptism. Possibly, Peter was speaking more significantly than he realized at the time because he says, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. But Peter's hands and head, figuratively speaking, had already been washed or cleansed. Because the cleansing action of the word, cleansing the mind, would be what the head represents. And by having the mind cleansed, the deeds represented by the hands would also be cleansed. But why then the necessity for the washing of the feet? In fact, going on with the 12th verse, it says, So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and sat down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done unto you? Ye call me Master and Lord. And ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Now we're all aware that there are certain fundamentalist sects who put an extremely literal interpretation on this commandment. And I don't know that we can criticize them for doing so. But we wonder whether it is not true in this case as in others that people lose the spiritual significance by concentrating their attention upon the literal. Why did Jesus tell the disciples to wash one another's feet? And how is this to be done? The feet, of course, are the parts of our body by which we walk. And the brethren and sisters in all ages have had to tread a very dirty world. And as a result of having to walk through this dirty world, 
figuratively speaking, our walk or our feet uh, receive defilement. We just can't get away from it. And this defilement of the walk, nothing done deliberately as with the hand, this defilement of the walk needs to be removed. And how is it to be removed? And how are we to wash one another's feet? Remembering then that it is the word which does the cleansing, it is only reasonable to understand that this is by the application of the word. This we can do in counsel to one another. This we can do by exhortation. In fact, it is wise that the early members of the Christadelphian body chose to call our discourses, such as we give on Sunday morning, exhortation, because the word exhort means to urge. We don't preach to people in the sense that I am telling you we urge one another, we encourage one another to walk and cleanse uh, uprightly and to cleanse our way. And any sincere brother who prepares an exhortation has himself very much in mind when he prepares his exhortation. And I don't mean that he has himself in mind as to what kind of glory he's going to get out of it and how many compliments he's going to receive for his exhortation. But rather he has himself in mind as to his own limitations and his own need for cleansing. And his own weaknesses tell him the weaknesses which are common to the flesh and indicate to him what it is that we need to be exhorted about. So therefore, following out then in spirit the example that Jesus gave us, we are to wash one another's feet through the use of the water of the word, even as we read that he is cleansing the church by this means. And so this was a gentle and fitting and telling rebuke to his disciples who were filled with their own rival ambitions on this occasion. He continues in the 16th verse, Verily, verily I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If the master, the head of the body, could take upon himself this humble duty of service on behalf of the body, is there any reason why we who are not the master and who are not lords in our own right cannot take this humble duty upon ourselves. And in doing so, 
we need to copy Jesus' humility. We should not consider ourselves as agents for the administration of rebukes, except in extreme cases, and then it requires extreme humility and care that we must take heed considering ourselves lest we also be tempted in such circumstances. Jesus was the servant of God and we also are to be servants of his. We are not to arrogate our, to ourselves uh, the position of masters but rather we are to be of service one to another. And in the Bible school such as this, those of us who are called upon to teach, I trust, do not do so for any glory that they hope to gain to themselves, or any compliments or statements of appreciation for what they have done, in fact, this becomes embarrassing at times, but rather as a means of helping also those who administer such a school, who get no apparent credit or thanks and a lot of criticism, do it also as a work of service, a labor of love. And if we can always keep in our minds this fundamental position that we have, that we are servants, first of all, of our God and of our Lord, and secondarily, servants of one another, to help one another, to wash one another's feet in whatever way we can, we have come a long way toward becoming true and mature servants of our Lord and our God. We all need this cleansing of our walk and the means for the cleansing is provided. The defilement that we acquire as a result of walking through this filthy world of ours is not held against us, provided we do submit ourselves to this washing and cleansing operation. And so we have had an example of the tremendous stature of our Lord and the beautiful humility which he displayed, which should be an example to each and every one of us. So as the Bible school draws to a close, if we can learn nothing more than this one fact, that we must always remember that we are servants and not lords one over another, we have learned a valuable lesson.